Welcome to the podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I'm Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. And I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Enid Martinez on behalf of her co-authors for her paper that is published in the November 2020 issue of JPEN. It's entitled Interleukin-10 and Zonulin are Associated with Postoperative Delayed Gastric Emptying in Critically Ill Surgical Patients, a Prospective Pilot Study. Welcome, Dr. Martinez. Hi, and thank you so much for this invitation, Dr. Tappenden, and for the opportunity to talk about our research to the readers of JPEN. Oh, our pleasure. Now, you've tackled such an important issue here because we know that enteral feeding intolerance is not just in adult critically ill patients, but also in critically ill children, too. And you are tackling the issue of impaired gastric emptying, which, of course, is central to our ability to feed these patients with, via the enteral route. Uh, can you tell us a bit about some of the background for why you conducted this trial? Well, you hit the nail on the head. I am a pediatric intensivist, and so we obviously want to feed our children in the ICU and would always prefer to feed them enterally as opposed to parenterally. And we find that a lot of these patients have significant enteral nutrition intolerance. One of the biggest concerns is that if the stomach isn't working well, not only can we not feed them gastrically, but we worry about being able to administer medications. And there's always a concern also with the risk for aspiration, particularly in patients who are potentially mechanically ventilated or maybe can't protect their airway. So I've been interested in this topic of gastric emptying in critically ill children, first looking at how to measure it and progressively more so at understanding the underlying mechanisms that are driving this. So with this study, we aim to examine whether inflammation is playing a role or at least is associated with gastric emptying changes after surgery in this population. And also we started to tackle a particular pathway, the zonulin protease activated receptor two pathway, as it may relate to gastric emptying changes after surgeries in the context of inflammation. Okay, so right up front, for our listeners that may not be familiar with zonulin, uh, tell, us, tell us exactly what that does and why it was a focus of your study. So I work with Dr. Fasano and his team, and it was in fact Dr. Fasano and his team that identified the zonulin peptide family. The first protein identified was specifically associated with the tight junction of the epithelial barrier in the gastrointestinal tract. And it was found that this protein could reversibly disassemble the tight junctions and cause barrier leak. It's been studied a fair amount in the context of chronic inflammatory conditions, including autoimmune diseases such as celiac disease and also diseases such as type 1 diabetes. I was interested in this protein because it acts via the protease activated receptor 2. And the protease activated receptor 2, which is present throughout the gastrointestinal tract in multiple different cell layers, including the epithelia, where zonulin primarily has been found to act, has also been found in animal models to be related to gastrointestinal motility changes. And so we hypothesized that potentially this receptor and this protein zonulin, which are known to have an effect on epithelial barrier disruption in conditions of chronic inflammation, 
could also have a role in conditions of acute inflammation and in relation to gastric emptying changes. And that is why in this study, in addition to examining how gastric emptying changed after an inflammatory trigger, we specifically focus on changes in zonulin, given that it is an agonist of the protease activator receptor 2 and paving the pathway for translational studies that will allow us to look at the receptor itself. Okay, very good. So you conducted a clinical trial with children following surgery, uh, but you used each of them as, your own con as their own control. Tell us about your, your study design. So patients who are admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, many of them present hyperacutely where we don't have the opportunity to examine what their baseline status is. And in that context, many studies use as their control healthy patients. But that doesn't account for the fact that there could be some variability in every patient's individual baseline gastrointestinal function or markers. So we wanted to take into account each patient's baseline gastric emptying and baseline status in regards to zonulin and inflammatory markers. In aiming to do that, we elected to recruit patients who were undergoing posterior spinal fusion. And the reason being is that patients who undergo this surgery and require critical care often do have significant changes in their gastrointestinal function. So clinically, we knew that these patients struggle with gastric emptying. Clinically, we knew that these patients have significant changes associated with inflammation like tachycardia, sometimes even hypotension, requiring blood pressure agents. And yet this is an elective surgery. And so we would be able to examine these patients in their complete healthy baseline prior to undergoing surgery, allowing us to use patients as their own controls at their baseline status and taking into account any potential subtle differences in gastric emptying and zonulin levels or inflammatory markers at each patient's baseline. All right. So you measured baseline values, the patients had the surgery, and then you, you did your assessment again. At what point following surgery did you look at these key proteins? Correct. We examined patients uh, once they entered the operating room, but before incision, because we know that that's where an inflammation starts. And then they would get examined again on post-operative day one in the morning. Posterior spinal fusion tends to be a six to eight hour long surgery which means that by the time the patients arrived in the ICU and we were examining the next day, they had been at least 12 to 18 hours post-surgery. All right, so tell us what you found. Yes, yeah, so first of all, we wanted to confirm what we suspected, which is that these patients would have a significant inflammatory trigger after surgery. And so we looked at our cytokine levels before and after surgery and found that indeed there was a significant increase in interleukin-6, 8, and in interleukin-10. We did not find a significant increase in TNF-alpha or interferon-gamma. TNF-alpha has been reported previously to be elevated after surgery, but that may be a function of the time point at which we examined because it tends to peak quite early after the inflammatory trigger. So the first thing is that indeed our patients had inflammatory changes. We then confirmed whether patients were having some degree of gut barrier dysregulation, given that other studies have shown this. We used lipopolysaccharide binding protein as one of our proxy markers. Lipopolysaccharide binding protein 
increases in the bloodstream, particularly in the presence of LPS. And given that our patients were previously healthy, it serves as a proxy for gastrointestinal barrier leak of LPS from the native bacteria in this patient's GI tract. So that would reflect that these patients were having some degree of gut barrier dysregulation. I will note that our levels were not as high as, say, in patients with sepsis or patients who have more prolonged triggers of inflammation. And that makes sense because our patients were in the ICU for two days, which means that this was a short-lived trigger. And then we looked at gastric emptying. And we found that 40% of our patients indeed had delayed gastric emptying, which we defined as a 20% drop from their preoperative area under the curve at 60 minutes using the acetaminophen absorption test, which I am happy to explain in further detail. I'd like to go back to the cytokines that you measured. Uh, we're talking about inflammation here and looking at the inflammatory state that the patients were in after surgery compared to baseline. However, I'm, I'm a little confused at the measures of IL-6 versus 8 and 10, um, which are IL-10s in cert for certain is an anti-inflammatory cytokine look to regulate that inflammatory type of process, right? So tell me how those were all fit together um, so that, that I and our reader can understand the balance of cytokines that you looked at. Yes. So it's been seen that particularly after an inflammatory trigger associated particularly with surgery, there is an increase in interleukin-6 particularly. And as part of the autoregulation of interleukin-6, there also is a secondary increase in interleukin-10. And it is just, as you mentioned, part of that yin and yang of inflammation where interleukin-6 activates a pro-inflammatory cascade, including immune cells, releasing and activating other cytokines. But then the body, to counter-regulate that, will then subsequently trigger an increase in interleukin-10, which quiets down often those same immune cells and in fact, quiets down the pro-inflammatory cascade. So we wanted to understand this patient's balance in regards to particularly interleukin-6 being one of the primary cytokines that have been described in surgical inflammation and its counterpart being interleukin-10. Interleukin-8, TNF-alpha, and interferon gamma have also been described, TNF-alpha being a classic pro-inflammatory cytokine as well in the setting of injury. And as I mentioned in our study, we did not see it increased, but in regards to the timeline of how these cytokines tend to be released and peak, TNF-alpha in fact is one of the earliest cytokines to peak that triggers a lot of this cascade. And it may be that we missed that peak, that it happened much earlier immediately after surgery or maybe even during surgery. And by the time we're examining these patients the next day, their cascade has already been moved downstream. And so we missed that specific cytokine. I think there's good rationale for why you propose that you may have missed TNF-alpha. How did you select the timing, though, with regard to what's known from other papers in the literature regarding IL-6, 8, and 10, with IL-10 following IL-6? And, and I guess what I'm wondering is, why didn't you do multiple time points following surgery? That's a great question. And at that point, we were balancing getting all the information that we wanted with study design and also the fact that with all of these lab draws 
in our pediatric patients, we always worry about excessive phlebotomy. So we had to balance how many times we access the patient so that we wouldn't risk contributing further, particularly if a patient were younger, to excessive uh, blood drawing with our time points and identified that the next postoperative day would definitely identify that interleukin-6, 8, and 10 peak, even if we potentially miss TNF-alpha in that context. All right. So you see this profile of cytokines, uh, a pro-inflammatory state following surgery. And you also then looked at gastric emptying. And you said that you used the acetaminophen test to show that indeed gastric emptying was delayed and I think about 40% of your patients, is that right? That is How does correct. that work? For the readers who aren't familiar with the acetaminophen test, why don't you just, just give a brief overview of how that works? Yes, so the gold standard for gastric emptying would be using scintigraphy, which requires going off the unit. And so both on the preoperative day where our patients are already in the operating room and also on our first postoperative day in the ICU, obtaining scintigraphy was not feasible. Therefore, we went ahead with a technique of examining gastric emptying that we've previously employed successfully that can be pretty uniformly applied to all patients and doesn't allow uh, or require to be more specific movement from the ICU in patients who can be quite uh, at times unstable. So the way this works is that acetaminophen or paracetamol, as it's also seen in the literature, it's not absorbed in the stomach but it is absorbed in the small bowel. So as it transfers from the stomach into the small bowel, it starts being metabolized and showing up in the blood. Acetaminophen that is transferred more rapidly from the stomach into the small bowel will result in a higher peak of acetaminophen in the bloodstream at an earlier time point, whereas acetaminophen that is more slowly because of slow gastric emptying transferred from the stomach into the small bowel will result in a later and much lower peak of acetaminophen. As you may be thinking, this requires that the patients have normal metabolism, normal liver function, that they can take acetaminophen, and also that they have no known significant malabsorptive gastrointestinal tract dysfunction. And so those were some of our exclusion criteria for the study to be able to perform the acetaminophen absorption test. I think it's important for individuals to understand that that is specific to the stomach um, because it kind of relates to my next question then, which is trying to understand your zonulin data, looking at barrier function in the gut, because that is not specific to the stomach. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we would expect that to be more along the length of the gut and probably more influenced by the small intestine permeability, wouldn't it? You are correct that zonulin is not specific to the stomach. Zonulin, and in fact, the PAR2 receptor as well, has been shown to be present throughout the whole of the GI tract from the stomach all the way to the colon in multiple cell layers throughout the GI tract. And in fact, also in endothelia, so it's not specific only to epithelial layers. So that reminds us that uh, when we look at the zonulin levels, and these are some of the limitations that sometimes we have in these patient studies where we don't have access to tissue, what we're seeing is proxy levels that allow us to start to understand these relationships 
but don't prove any causality or are and are also not specific to one specific tissue, but start guiding the light for follow-up studies. And that it will certainly do. So I want you to try and help explain these results to me because going into this paper, I would expect that with delayed gastric emptying, uh, a inflammatory type of state that we would see increased barrier function uh, and an increased zonulin, but that's not what you found, is it? Yes, that was very surprising to us as well. We also walked into this study with the hypothesis, like we all do when we propose a study, that zonulin would increase with inflammation. And in fact, what we found was that zonulin decreased in these patients postoperatively. And when we started correlating our different variables, we found that there was a correlation between the greater the interleukin 10 increase, the greater the zonulin decrease postoperatively in our patients. And there was a relationship, specifically patients who had postoperative delayed gastric emptying had a greater increase in interleukin 10 and decrease in zonulin. So there seemed to be a almost synergism between these two proteins. And we found that very surprising. So of course, it is something that at this point we want to explore more, but one thing that we are hypothesizing as next steps is that it's possible that part of that anti-inflammatory cascade that's trying to compensate for that pro-inflammation, for that increase in LBP that does suggest some degree of barrier dysregulation, that as part of that, zonulin may actually be down-regulated to compensate. And one of the things to remind ourselves is that zonulin is a reversible regulator of the epithelial barrier. So this ability to potentially increase or decrease it is, is feasible, is plausible, given that it is reversible. And so, yeah, we found that very surprising and I'm very interested in looking into it further since it had not been described in this kind of model before. So it could come down to a timing effect, right? Um, with IL-6 being elevated at some point before, likely TNF was elevated, and it may just be that zonulin is reversible more quickly than is the clearing of IL-6. Is that, is that possible? And that looking yeah. at different times would, would help us zero in on, on what you originally hypothesized and give us more of the cascade perspective. I agree with you 100%. That is certainly possible that either zonulin peaked earlier before the anti-inflammatory cascade sets in and then decreased. And so I agree with you, one of the big things that we look forward to doing in the future is adding more time points, both in between the trigger and what we already measured but also at the time of complete resolution for these patients, because it would be great to see that all these markers eventually return back to what we saw at the baseline level and see how gastric emptying similarly in that progressive improvement in cytokine levels, zonulin levels, and LBP, see how gastric emptying also reverts back to the patient's baseline levels. So those are among our future projects. That's fascinating. Thank you for, for looking through this and, and trying to understand this, this issue. Now, for those of our listeners who would like to hear some practical advice from an expert such as yourself, um, what, what advice would you give them as they are working with, with critically ill children and struggling with enteral feeding intolerance? Um, you know, what are the strategies that you and your colleagues use at Boston Children's Hospital? That is the million dollar question, right? Because right now what we have is similar to what 
everybody else has, which is those bedside assessments of abdominal distension, um, diarrhea, vomiting, if the patient's able to let us know, are they comfortable or uncomfortable? And last but not least, we still monitor gastric residual volume. Our strategy has been uh, that we look for whether the patient has more than one marker of enteral nutrition intolerance and based on that, uh, determine whether the patient's either rate of advancement of nutrition needs to be different or whether they should be considered for post-pyloric nutrition whenever we are concerned that their stomach is not working well. However, we recognize that a lot of these markers are nonspecific and don't always correlate. In fact, we ourselves have previously shown that gastric residual volume does not correlate with gastric emptying. And many people were not surprised at that finding because it's what we've all suspected at the bedside. But so we look forward to being able to implement further and make it more accessible in the future using techniques such as the acetaminophen adsorption test. And in fact, part of also doing the ROC curves to see the predictive value of interleukin-10 and zonulin levels in this study is that we're looking for biomarkers, viable biomarkers that also help us understand those patients that are at higher risk of delayed gastric emptying so that we can empirically move to post-pyloric nutrition given that we're identifying that this patient is at higher risk. So we currently don't apply these biomarkers at my hospital, but it's certainly among the things that we're looking forward to do with these studies is understand these pathways so that we can have better diagnostic modalities to decide who should receive gastric versus post-pyloric nutrition versus potentially even have to consider parenteral nutrition due to gastrointestinal dysfunction. Fascinating. So it sounds like in kids, many of the same issues relating to nutrition support uh, in those that are critically ill are very similar to the struggles that are seen with adults. I want to thank you for sharing this paper with us. And indeed congratulate you because this paper was a well-deserved recipient for the finalist as the Harry M. Bars Award and the Promising Investigator Award. Congratulations for having your work be recognized as one of those elite papers noted at the Aspen Conference. I'm so sorry that coronavirus prevented that meeting from happening and the awarding of the HM Bars Award. I, I think you and the other finalists should, should feel very strongly that you were all finalists and that your papers will be noted as candidates for that award this year. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Dr. Tappenden. I would also like to thank my co-authors, my mentors, Dr. Fasano and Dr. Mehta, my grant support from the NIH and the Aspen Rhodes Research Foundation, and the support from my division and department, all of whom without this work would have not been possible. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the paper in this forum, given that as you shared, we didn't have the opportunity to present during the Aspen conference and answer questions. So thank you for the opportunity to share it with the readers of JPEN. My pleasure. That is definitely one of the reasons I selected your paper for the podcast for this issue. 
for our readers, please do go to the November 2020 issue of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition and read the paper by Dr. Martinez and her colleagues from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School entitled Interleukin-10 and Zonulin are Associated with Postoperative Delayed Gastric Emptying in Critically Ill Surgical Pediatric Patients, a Prospective Pilot Study.